Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofsch University live from the Richard Philip Cavallero Studio South. Welcome to the Monday edition of Hofsch's Morning Wake Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Danny DiGrisenzo, filling in for Matt McDermott, joined by Nathan Ritchie. Today we're discussing Disability Employment Awareness Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, and more. Nathan, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Remember the last time we did a morning wake up call? Oh, yeah. It was literally at. Seven, I want to say seven a.m. No, it was at five a.m. Five. Oh, right, it was at five a.m. Yeah, don't <laughs> That's remind what me. I remember about. Don't that. remind me. That was brutal. I, I kind of, I, I still have that saved. If you just listen to it, we just sound dead. Yeah, that's about expected. Yeah, there's, mean, there was no energy, but I had, you know, you have to do it when you're, you have to be done. The show must go on. That's how it goes. One hundred percent. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, last year I was on uh, morning wake up call Thursdays on Zoom. And Zoom, I think the essence of Zoom just kind of deadens your voice. And oh, your yeah, 100%. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as crisp as actually being on the mic. It's just not the same. But yeah. we're here now. We're at a more reasonable hour in the morning, I would say. And we have a good show lined up. And we're going to start with Disability Employment Awareness Month, which is this today marks the second Monday of that month. And the history of this month, month stretches back to 1945 when Congress designated the first week of October as, quote, National Employee the Physically Handicapped Week. In 1962, the word physically was removed to accommodate the needs of those with mental disabilities in 1987. The week was expanded to a month and renamed National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the purpose of this month is to, quote, pay tribute to the accomplishments of the men and women with disabilities whose work helps keep the nation's economy strong and by reaffirming their commitment to ensure equal opportunity for all citizens. The theme for this year is appropriately, quote, America's recovery powered by inclusion. So, Nathan, what are your thoughts? I think attaching awareness uh, to a period of time like this is great. And we talked about this with uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, with um, uh, with Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and how what that effect has been, uh, not only in sports where it's uh, gotten so much attention, absolutely, but in all of society, you know, um, and what that really brought to the research on breast cancer, and what that brought uh, to appreciating. Uh, Hispanic heritage and to the people in your community and I think that's so great and it's the same here uh, and it just goes to show that like you look at America even 10 years ago it wasn't nearly as accessible as it is today for handicapped people both mentally and physically yeah I mean you think of the um, ADA from the early 1990s George H.W. Bush passed it that was very that was huge and you think about you know how not only has there been de jure accessibility in that law but de facto accessibility as well in terms of just being more accepting tolerance accommodations etc for people with all sorts of disabilities i know that in my hometown just right before covid hit they opened up a cafe that was staffed exclusive exclusively by um residents in middle my hometown middletown with mental disabilities so that was very um encouraging to see that you think about how that wouldn't have been, like you said, maybe 10 years ago, that might not have been a thing. But now we've gotten to that point where we are able to, as a society, see that as a good thing and see that as something where you can always get, you can get good food no matter who's staffing you, you know. And, you know, after an 18-month-long period that challenged our whole notion of what work is, I use air quotes around work, it's crucial that we remember those in our society with disabilities who contribute so much. There remains a strong stigma, I would say, still, and it's d dulling because, 
it's dulling, but still, there's a lot of ableism going on in terms of our culture and acceptance, tolerance, and accommodations for those with disabilities are concepts that need to be stressed now more than ever, given how accessible COVID has made working. And we need to carry that momentum into the post-COVID world in terms of keeping things accessible and reducing, chipping away that stigma of able, that ableist stigma around disabilities. Right. And it, what is ableism exactly? Just if, if it's, want it's a bias towards able-bodied people, whether it be mental right. or physical. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with, uh, with that sentiment. And, um, I think, yeah, acceptance has, has gone, a, gone a long way from, like I said, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera. And I think, uh, that there's just more there's I think we have more to do in that respect mm -hmm. um, in terms of accepting um, disabled people into society and treating them as as equal like you were saying and uh, yeah I think um, I think there's still a long way to go with that I was reading this great article about a teacher who was talking about how she was giving a lesson plan and one or two kids just weren't getting it and she was saying, well, I'm doing everything right. I'm a good teacher. And she said, you know, thinking back on that, that's ableist because yeah. you're first of all assuming that everyone can get your lesson and you're a good teacher. Just because you're a good teacher doesn't mean everyone gets your lesson. Everyone has special ha – everyone has unique educational needs for one. You know, everyone learns a little bit differently. And especially those with disabilities in the classroom, they need their own accommodations. So to just say I'm a blank – I'm a good teacher as a blanket – excuse for n kids not getting it she said that's harmful to education because it takes away that idea that everyone has a unique way of learning especially those who may need other accommodations as well so i thought that was very insightful and that was it was attached to a bunch of articles that we're talking about this month i thought it was a good one that i was able to fish out when i was researching for this uh discussion yeah of course i, I think disability awareness month has brought a lot of change not only to attention to dis to those with disabilities, but education as well, like you were talking about, uh, for everyone, for all kids. Because, you know, kids, like you said, have uh, different needs depending on, on who you're teaching, depending on who's learning. And I think that it's especially important that we, we give those, that we kind of curate education to those kids Um in need and i think uh yeah i think that's a very important aspect of education in a society and i think that's what disability awareness month has done not only in addition to what they've done actually for those with disabilities of course and nathan we're about to be joined by a very special guest you want to give our listeners the rundown on our guest here yeah so we have dr craig rustici who is a director of disability studies at hofstra university and he's going to be talking to us on the treatment of dis of disabled people in America, as well as uh, how can we better accommodate them uh, in the workplace and in society as a whole. All right. Well, I think it's time to put them on. Dr. Rusici. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? How are you? I'm good. 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 Thank you for the opportunity. No problem. Uh, do you want to go first, Nathan? Yes, I will. So uh, for, to start it off, I... I wanted to ask, what what are the some of the lesser known barriers that disabled people may face at work in the workplace? Right. So um, I was actually looking at some recent studies. Um, some of the things that are more obvious are being reported a little bit less in the recent studies, or things that we're more familiar with. 
uh, the reports of stigma or prejudice, those are going down a little bit. Problems with transportation going down a little bit. Maybe lesser known ones, um, there's a, a great anxiety about losing um, safety net resources or supports um, if they're employed. There's been a long kind of history where uh, if you look at some of the um, early social security laws, they kind of define disability as the inability to be gainfully employed. You know, you hear this people people say, you know, I was injured at work and so I went on disability. We still have this sense that sort of a disabled worker is a contradiction in terms. Um, and so in some cases, once someone um, gets employment and certainly at a certain level, then they start losing the services that in some cases just enabled them to do that work, right? So they get caught in a kind of catch-22. Um, and there's been improvements in that over time. There have been laws that have tried to address that, but there's still a great anxiety. And you can see a, maybe a parallel even to some of the discussions that happened this summer about uh, people who were receiving the enhanced unemployment benefits, right? If you're at the very low end of the income scale, then the risk is that the job you take may not pay well enough to offset what you're losing in benefits that you might have relied upon. Um, and these might be, you know, attendant care or other kinds of things like that. Um, so I think that's, you know, not one that comes to mind as readily. Um, there's also um, still reported, um, this may not be reflecting the full effect of the uh, Affordable Care Act, but concern about whether you will have health insurance. And again, one of the possible accommodations that uh, people with disabilities might sometimes seek and receive might be reduced hours, but as you know, often benefits are tied to 40 hours or something like that. So um, there's the risk that the employment they might get might not come with health insurance, and they might be very dependent on that. I'd say one more is um, a kind of concern, and I think this is harder to document, but of a sort of backlash against the provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So lots of people know that that um, requires employers to make reasonable accommodations, and that's a, a term, obviously, that, that courts and lawyers have argued about. But I think there can be an anxiety, or at least there's a concern that there's anxiety among employers that workers with disabilities are going to be more expensive because they're going to have to make some sort of accommodation. And then they might be filtered out, you know, pretty early in the process just because there's an assumption this person's going to cost me more than another worker. And I would say those are some of the major ones. Oh, gotcha. So how does job discrimination affect disabled people belonging to a racial or sexual minority? Does this add a layer of difficulty not otherwise faced? So, yes. Um, it, we know, right, the, the, uh, they recently redid those studies where... Um, People have tried sending out the exact same resume, but with um, stereotypically African-American or black names and stereotypically um, white names, and the response rate is different. Um, there's a kind of uh, a, uh, a black disadvantage uh, demonstrated in those. So we know that we have that kind of level of discrimination. Um, in terms of outcomes, the, um, the data is, is complicated. Um, so 
when we're thinking about um, especially employment for people with disabilities, one of the things that we look at is what's called the employment gap. Um, and it's, it's frankly historically been pretty bad. So that usually, fairly consistently, the unemployment rate in a given time for people with disabilities is about twice the unemployment rate for people without disabilities. And the other number that you look at is the, um, the workforce participation rate. Right, so that's the number of people who are employed or seeking employment. This is off, you know, in hard economic times, we say that this is used sometimes to capture the effect of discouraged workers, people who've just given up. And in that case, again, it's about half as many, uh, the percentage of people without disabilities who are work for, in the workforce, either seeking work or have work, um, is usually about twice um, the percentage of people with disabilities. So we can talk about an employment gap by looking at the difference between those two numbers. Um, so if you, if you have a disability, um, what percentage of that population is in the workforce if you don't have a disability? What researchers have done have, is to be a little more fine-grained and then uh, add in factors. Um, like minority status. Um, so the, the gap between the percentage of people without disabilities and the people, percentage of people with disabilities in their workforce is largest for black Americans. Um, it's actually for Hispanic and Asian Americans, that gap is actually lower than it is for white Americans. Um, and there, there may be kind of complicated reasons for that. In the case of Hispanics, they actually start off with a lower employment rate. Um, they do the percentage of um, disabled uh, Hispanics who are in the workforce is actually a little better. But again, part of the reason why that gap is narrower is because the employment rate for Hispanics is already lower than it is for white Americans. Um, so we do see that in terms of outcomes, um, the employment uh, rate for and the workforce participation rate for people with disabilities who are also black is the high is the the worst. Um, th those numbers are the worst. Um, it's a little in terms of sex. There's a small difference. Um, the employment gap for women with disabilities is actually a little lower than the employment gap for men with disabilities. And how can workplaces do better to accommodate the disabled people that they have employed? So the, the studies indicate that the sort of accommodations that um, are being, that people with disabilities are identifying as the most valuable um, or the ones they use the most are um, flexible schedules and some modification of job responsibilities. Um, there are also, you know, there might be some kind of um, software or other factors like that, but the ones that are showing up the most are those two. Um, and, you know, it may be that one of the unexpected silver linings of the pandemic is that uh, we're, we've kind of had this big experiment in being more flexible 
about uh, work schedules, work environments, where people do their work. You know, I think maybe two or three years ago, if someone said, you know, it's some days it's very burdensome for me to get to the office. Uh, you know, the public transit is not very accessible near me. It can take a long time. Could I work from home two or three days a week? Probably the response to that would have been much more negative than after a year or 18 months of a large part of the population working from home and people seeing that that works. And one more question for you. Do you think infrastructure today, specifically on Long Island and the five boroughs, has made everyday resources accessible to disabled people? And how has this changed over time and what is there still to do? Yeah, so um, I, I looked up some reporting on this in preparation for our interview, and it's, it's not great. Um, just anecdotally myself, I, I commute to campus from Queens, and I've been noticing, I don't know if it's because this is Disability Awareness Month or if something's changed, but I'm hearing a lot of announcements on the subway, this is an accessible station, right? And the, the elevator is in the center or the, at the end. That's mostly, in my experience, just the express stops. Um, so that means that, you know, in my case, there might be um, four or five local stops between the express stops, so those stations are, are not accessible. Um, looking more kind of globally, uh, I noticed an article from Newsday that in the past year or two, uh, the LIR settled a suit about the lack of elevators in several of their uh, the Long Island Road, uh, Railroad train stations. Um, there was also an interview with uh, the mayor's kind of point man on disability uh, in the city. And again, in the context of this, uh, fairly recently a judge was compelling the city to um, upgrade the street corners. There was a report, this is kind of hard to believe, but uh, the reporter side a report um, that 90% of the uh, street, the curbs, in Manhattan uh, were not ADA compliant. I mean, they might have kind of tried with curb cuts, but apparently they really didn't meet the standard. So I think transportation is a really obvious factor. The other thing to remember about that, you know, we're in a pretty good situation in Metro New York because we have a public transit system. Um, but obviously, um, the even if it's 100% accessible, the public transit system is only going to be as good for disabled people as it is for the general population. There are lots of places in the country where there's really very little public transit and um, not, not very efficient public transit, not widely available. Even here, I, I think it's, it's coming back. I can tell that on my commute. But remember, in the depths of the pandemic, because of finances and because of low ridership, uh, the frequency of trains and all that you know, really declined. Um, so public transit would be one factor. Um, the uh, Newsday also reported fairly recently on the large number of public buildings. So these would be uh, government buildings on Long Island that uh, were not accessible, didn't have automatic doors. Uh, so I think there was, uh, in the report, there was one person who was maybe like a town councilman or something like that, or council person. And um, she said, i got to wait 10 or 15 minutes for somebody to leave or enter the building because you don't have an automatic door here. Uh, so it sounds like it would be a mistake for us to think 
this is 30, 31 years after the ADA, we're all good. Um, there's still a, a lot of work left to do. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rasisi, for, for talking with us. I mean, it was really interesting uh, to hear your insight on, on accessibility, especially on Long Island and in the five boroughs. So uh, we uh, greatly appreciate that, and we hope you have a great day. You're very welcome. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a that was a wonderful interview. Yes, it was. I did his his research that he did on Long Island. That really shocked me. Ninety percent of street corners not ADA compliant. I know I, that's amazing to to hear. I mean, I, I can't even fathom that that's even possible. I, yeah, especially <laughs> in a city where you would pro, you would expect it to be better. Ninety percent. Wow. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, his research was very thorough. Um, oh, he knew his stuff. Yeah. Uh, and. Yeah. Hats off to you guys for getting this interview. Oh yeah, no problem. I, I mean, yeah, we 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 try our best. I mean, yeah. uh, Blaze, shout out to Blaze Rollins again for for uh, helping us, you know, book interviews this mm. whole month. Uh, oh yeah, special uh, awareness months, uh, and to be able to get that information out. I'm, I'm kind of jealous because I'm not having a show this week because we're on break, so I'm not getting a right. chance unfortunately i mean that's yeah. kind of why i'm here i wanted to get one morning show in you know because i'm kind of selfish like that <laughs> yeah yeah no the passion it's it's, it's understandable yeah no i wish i would have i would have loved to get a, a good old blaze interview so, on, from somebody that could talk about disability disabilities and, and whatnot but uh yeah that was a great interview he had he knew his stuff clearly um it showed but i actually have See, I'm going to make up for now. I have a feature that I did. It's going to air tonight on Newsline. Hint, hint, 5.30 to 6 o'clock. I produced the Monday show with Blaze, actually, so I'm glad you brought him up. Yes. It's about um, one of my friends, Aliana Booth. She is not only in SGA with me, Student Government Association. She also is the vice president of the LEAF Club, which is Leaders for Environmental Action Fellowship here at Hofstra. And we talked about we talked exclusively about sustainability and, and um, making sure that you could be sustainable with resiliency. I know this is a little bit of a transition, but we're talking about one illity to another illity, accessibility, uh, disability. I guess it kind of works. No? Yes? Yeah. Eh, I tried. <laughs> but um, it's a it's a great little feature I did. And if you want to hear it again, again, selfish, se- shameless plug for Newsline tonight, 530 to 6. And without further ado, here is Aliana Booth. I believe sustainability is making sure you have the resources for your generation and future generations, but then also being resilient, which is the big new thing is sustainability and resiliency. So being able to withstand like constant changes, changes and obstacles that are being brought to you due to like the changing environment and climate. That's Aliana Booth, a sophomore at Hofstra University, studying urban ecology with a minor in sustainability studies. Concentrating on those two fields isn't that common for college students in America. According to stateuniversity.com, even schools well known for those offerings only have about 1% of their undergraduates in the programs. For Booth, her passion spawned from her belief in the importance of protecting the environment. It's been a kind of like a long journey of like different stuff that sparked it, but I think it had to do mostly when I watched a YouTube video and it related to a country called Tuvalu, which is like a very, very small country in the Pacific. And people don't travel there, but they travel there for the UN, like UN representatives do, because it's an island that's at threat due to the rise in sea level. 
So hearing how this country where the people there barely contribute to the rate at which climate change occurs, and they are at threat of like losing their home due to the rise in sea level. That's kind of why I felt like sustainability was like something I should be working on because it's like an issue that people are currently feeling the effects of. And I felt like I needed to do something to help in some way, big or small. Aside from her studies, Booth is also vice president of the Leaders for Environmental Action Fellowship, or LEAF. The club is the latest incarnation of a Hofstra student group devoted to sustainability and the environment. And while they are a relatively new organization that had to deal with COVID-19 early on, Booth believes the club is starting to find its footing. So right now we're just kind of trying to figure out like what our role is on campus and like trying to do that, trying to find students who want to advocate for sustainable changes on campus and just trying to come up with like different events or opportunities for those students. And we're also working on like three initiatives. So that's like research based initiatives on ways that our campus can like be more sustainable. With the United States reeling from its hottest summer ever in 2021 and the United Nations having released their dire report on the state of climate change, the environment's health remains and will remain in the spotlight. When it comes to her biggest goal in the LEAF organization, Booth keeps it simple. I think my biggest goal with LEAF would be to inspire like students to continue to make sustainable changes. My big thing with clubs is making sure that they're sustainable in the sense that like once like the older students leave, there will be younger students who will continue like the goal or the idea or the message of the club. So my big thing with that would be like that we've continues to be a club that pushes for sustainable changes on campus. Booth made it very clear that even the little things can make a difference in sustainability, even when it doesn't seem that way. She urges everyone, not just college students, to take responsibility and better understanding the environment. I believe that education and empowerment are like really big things and like combating or like addressing sustainability and trying to be sustainable yourself. So I feel like learning about like the climate crisis and about like what it means to be sustainable and then knowing that like you do play a role in it is like big things like on a small level reducing the amount of meat you eat like has a big impact that's like a small thing that students can do on campus and off campus is like change their diet a bit or learn to like reduce the amount of waste that they're creating those are small things that like don't only apply on campus, but like you could bring into your life outside of campus as well. Reporting for Newsline, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. Long Island's largest radio news team brings you the Associated Press award-winning program, Newsline. Weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Exclusively on WRHU-FM and WRHU.org Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. And we are back again. Shout out to Aliana for helping me out with that feature. Very important stuff about the environment there. Um, have any thoughts on that, Nathan? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I always have thoughts on the environment as it is a dire yes. topic. I, I mean, we've been trying for, for years to, to normalize even speaking about it and even confirming that it's real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, uh, it's it's disheartening. And hopefully we can bring quick change so we can make the make the the changes we need uh, in the time that we've been given to deal with it yeah well i don't want to keep you bummed out for long so let's talk about something that you seem very very excited about it is about hispanic heritage month do you want to take us through that yeah yeah so 10 long islanders were honored in hispanic heritage month this month in october 
many of them uh, promoting community outreach. Uh, some were liaisons to local governments, uh, Suffolk County Police Department, Nassau County Police Department. Uh, many of them are also in education or in some education system helping children, uh, specifically immigrants, uh, who have yet to learn English and uh, really guiding them through those steps to become fluent in English and really assimilate into American culture and into American society. And uh, all of these people have immigrated uh, in some way from, from countries uh, like Puerto Rico, Mexico, Guatemala, and, and even more countries through Latin America. And they all have fascinating backgrounds. And I think that it, it's just so great that we're uh, honoring these people in our festivities. And I think it's great that we're even having these festivities in the first place. I know, yeah. And growing up, I grew up in a very ethnically homogeneous area and honoring other cultures was really just done in bits and pieces. It wasn't Hispanic Heritage Month or Black History Month was really just a fragment because it just, it was, again, I grew up in a not very diverse place. And working here at WRHU, it just see, being on the island, I've seen so many stories about Hispanic Heritage Month alone in the past four weeks about, you know, honoring those of Hispanic descent. And it's exciting to see these people honored for their incredible work, especially, as you said, people in education, helping helping young people. I think that's great. I think that's awesome. And I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this because it deserves a spotlight. Right, yeah. And, and it's such a, it's something you wouldn't really think about. Uh, people in education actually helping out non-English speaking uh, immigrants. And, and when we think of the education system, especially in America, it's something we don't totally consider that, that people may not be may not even speak an ounce of English. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's great that we're able to talk about it. And, and it's very interesting because I grew up in western New York, uh, in Rochester, and that's also a pretty homogeneous place. Uh, you know, there are some enclaves of, of Puerto, Rican, um, Puerto Rican people, especially in, uh, in the city. Uh, and I grew up in a suburb outside of the city where there's actually a small enclave of a uh, Yemeni immigrants yeah. uh, and Turkish people. Uh, so growing up there, I mean, I didn't really, un I didn't get the full taste of, of Hispanic heritage uh, and what that brings to a community. And it brings so much to a community and not, obviously not taking it away from the Yemeni community that we have. I mean, that was so influential on, on not even the community, just the, the school I went to. Yeah. Uh, there were so many kids uh, you know, who, who spoke different languages and, and were still able to connect with 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 people. And I was really grateful for that. And, and I I was um, constantly surrounded by them, I, whether it was any class you could imagine. Yeah, and that goes to show that it, diversity makes a community stronger because you get that, you get every, you get a little bit of different things from everybody. I think it creates a unique identity in the community that is only a stronger one because it's based on so many different things and you're able to share, you know, you're able to c communicate, you're able to come up with things that you wouldn't just do with one group. It's multiple groups coming together to make a strong community, which I think is really great. And, you know, I didn't have that growing up. It was a pretty, most most people were Italian like me. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I, I mean, it's great, but it's, it just wasn't very diverse. And I'm, 
I'm, it's cool to be in a diverse place now, as I said. It's cool to experience that here at college, and I think that's something that everyone should experience. Be be in a place where you're surrounded by people that are different from you. It's it's only going to help you learn more about the world and about other people. Exactly. It's such a big learning experience, and I mean, I can't. I agree completely with you, and I think Rochester is, a, uh, as a city, I think it's the perfect example of, of a mixture of, of diverse communities and homogeneous communities, and you just see the effect it has on people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because there are certain communities, certain towns in Rochester that racism just runs rampant, Yeah, and then there are communities like the one I grew up in, like the city like, uh, you know, these other communities in and around the city that are just so diverse and they, they have so many different populations of students, of, of people, of workers, uh, and people learn from them. It's constant exchange of information and of different perspective and that there's nothing that can help you more like that. I, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. I think that's... I think it's a great place to end because, again, diversity is strength. And I think what Long Island is doing with Hispanic Heritage Month, honoring these 10 individuals for their exemplary work is marvelous. We have a report now, and it's about Dave Chappelle. Who's our reporter this week? Matt DiDomenico is our reporter. Yeah, Matt. Love him. And he talked about Dave Chappelle, his latest controversy. He found himself in some hot water following his latest Netflix special titled The Closer or the prolific comedian crossed some topical boundaries in the eyes of the public as it pertained to the LGBTQ plus community. And with his previous Netflix specials, have, while his previous Netflix specials have each stirred their share of controversies, none have elicited the reaction of his latest stand-up performance. One point he made that seemed to particularly draw the ire of social media was when he pondered why the baby's severe criminal past, i.e., shooting and killing someone in a Walmart, is getting significantly less attention than his comments on the LGBTQ community did this past summer. And just on that the baby thing, you saw what he said, right? I did see what he said. That that deserves all the attention it's getting. Oh yeah. That you don't you can't just you don't just say that at a concert. <laughs> like, did he really go to this concert and expect that to be the thing he would say on stage? Right, like, yeah. I I mean it's it's certainly like you could tell it was it was just blatantly wrong oh obviously, yeah but it be sick i was sh- i was like did he really just actually say that like really yeah and, and then you saw that he doubled down he doubled down he doubled down again i think he doubled down like three times and then they started taking him off of shows and remember all the memes were out it was like oh the baby is no longer performing at my nine-year-old birthday party new lineup to come like everyone was putting memes on about it and then eventually he issued an apology, but it wasn't really an apology. And then he did like a full apology, I think. Right. So clearly he was in the wrong to the point where they were, he was being dropped like five. Didn't he get dropped from GovBall? Was that the one? Was that the big one he got dropped from? Or it was from might have been. Coachella? Or am I, I don't really know much about music, so I'm not sure. He got dropped off of one big thing that really was seen as a surprise. It might have been... Coachella. It might have been. It, he was definitely dropped from the iHeartRadio. Yeah, no, that was one. That was one. And I can't seem to remember the other ones, but I think a big point is clearly he's not educated on the, on the Absolutely, subject. Absolutely, right? yeah. And I think 
there were people reaching out to him, uh, celebrities, influential people that wanted to help. Elton John. Right, exactly. They wanted to help him get that awareness uh, so he could, you know, be successful and avoid any any controversy like that ever again. Yeah, and he just didn't listen. At first well, he didn't listen. Yeah, at first. I think he eventually gravitated towards it. And I think I think we don't... There's definitely credit to be given for that, for even uh, yeah, being... I but mean, it's the bare... Like, whoever his PR man is, or PR woman, they did a pretty awful job. Because <laughs> his stock... He was the number one guy on Spotify for a while. Yeah, he was. And then, boom, he was out of... And then Little Nas X, fittingly, surpassed him. Right, yeah. So, that, in and of itself, it cost him a lot of money. He cost him a lot of status in the rap community. But just... Off that aside from DaBaby, where I think that's probably the worst thing Chappelle said. One of the worst, Steve. One of the worst that isn't pertaining to the main points he said about the LGBT plus community. And I haven't given it a watch, so I'm going to defer to you first, because you said you have watched it. So give me your takes first. I watched it last night with um, with the awareness of, of today's report. And, I mean, I... I've watched everything Dave Chappelle has put out. I've watched Chappelle Show. Yeah. I've watched all of his Netflix specials. Everything he's done for Comedy Central. And I mean, I think it's clear that he's just his own persona. Like he is just in an independent from everything in terms of just what he says, how he says it, how blunt he is. And this is has been nothing short of, of just completely blunt and controversial. I mean, it, yeah, it's Dave Chappelle. Yeah, of course. Expect? It's yeah. it's him. And I think it's it has entertainment value in that wow, I can't believe he just said that. I can't believe I'm laughing at what he just said. Kind of like, you know, exactly like his other specials, exactly like, you know, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, those kind of comedians definitely brought upon that style of comedy uh, Norm Macdonald too oh yeah rest, rest in peace rest in peace I loved his <laughs> I loved his constant just a quick aside I love whenever he was on Weekend Update and he just constantly referenced OJ Exa- like, yeah exactly <laughs> that, that kind of thing and I think especially in this special we could see what generation Dave was born in yeah I think that was more clear than anything I've ever seen. Like, wow, this guy, I, I mean, I don't know, this guy's old. Yeah, he sounds old. <laughs> he does. Uh, and not to say that's a bad thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's just a different perspective in such a huge, blunt way. And it's like, it comes at you like a train. And, you know, he, he speaks on this drastic shift in an LGBTQ plus sentiment from when he was growing up in the 80s and 90s, when he was starting as a comedian, to today, and he kind of recounted this hypersensitivity that that uh, he sees today in, in the LGBTQ plus community. And I mean, that kind of brings up a, another question, I mean, another opinion that I would like to ask you. Have people become too sensitive to the point where not only he's talking about it, but people are you know, dragging him on social media for his 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 uh, piece. I mean, I think <clears throat> it's there's a difference 
when you're sensitive about a certain, it depends on the issue that you're sensitive about. If you're sensitive right. about something that isn't that really important, then, you know, maybe you could be called very sensitive. If, if someone points out a freckle on your face, it's just one freckle and, you know, you you get heated about it, you get pressed about it. That's maybe something you got to cool it a little bit. It's just a freckle and whoever's pointing that out to you is just a jerk. But <laughs> when you're talking about someone's sexual identity, their identification, their being, their persona, that's something that you're allowed to be sensitive about, I think. And okay. it's not even really being sensitive, just being, it's just common courtesy, like right. respect how they live their lives, respect how people want to be, respect who people want to be. And I think some of the things Chappelle said, again, I didn't watch it, so don't, don't take my opinion as dogma or anything, but when he said tur Team Turf, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, when he was talking about J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, I think just invoking that term in even a comedic context is harmful because true, feminine, true feminism needs to be intersectional for it to be real feminism. I think that goes without saying. And it contradicts his statement from the special that, quote, he never had a problem with trans people. Well, clearly some trans people that he considers too sensitive or too out there for him for, and they're clearly joke fodder for him in a way and it's not that black and white but the comments he made were problematic and of course he has a huge platform so when he set, when he dips his toes into these waters he's going to get blowback especially i think the turf thing might be the most damning thing he said just in terms of like how just blunt it was team turf that's very that's a very specific term and of course right. that's what jk rowling got in her, in her trouble for and rightly so, because, again, it, feminism is meant to be intersectional. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And um, I, I think his his piece, I, I think I, I would definitely need to watch it again, because there's something he said about um, what he was saying. And he, and he was like, you can go back and watch all my specials on Netflix. And he would say, it's all, my problem has never been with the LGBTQ plus community or, or anything like that. It has always been with white people. And the problem is that uh, they always, you know, hear what I'm saying. They always, they always laugh at what I'm saying. They always uh, consume my comedy. Because it's punching up. That's the difference. He's punching up when he jokes about white people. Well, he's punching down when he talks about the LGBTQ plus community. That's right. the whole point. Right. It's the he. You can't just make jokes about everybody because everyone has a, every group. Unfortunately, has a different status in society. So when you poke poke fun at one group, it could be completely different than poking fun at another. I, ha I hate to interrupt you, but that's just like the the term. Oh, no, I, I knew no, I knew no. you were going. I knew that's where you were going, but I wanted to like. I was like, oh my god. Ding, 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 ding. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. I, I mean, for sure. And I think that's something that maybe that, that's where society has kind of shaped comedy, that we can't, we have to treat uh, different groups with, with obviously different treatment. That's, that's given. Unfortunately, you wish you could treat everybody, you wish you could poke fun at everybody, but you can't. You, right. can, you can't, you can make jokes about Jeff Bezos, but you can't make jokes about the homeless man on the street. I mean, it's just, I think that's just a very blatant example. Like, why would you, why would you joke about a homeless man on the street? And you could say, well, I can joke about everybody. You can't, it's not right to joke about someone who's homeless on the street versus Jeff Bezos, who's going to the space. 
That's why he's the one who gets the butt of the jokes, not the homeless man. It's right. it's the same concept. You can't make jokes about every. You can't make jokes about everyone. You can't make fun, poke fun at everybody. At least you can't poke fun at everyone in the same way, because it's just not the same. It's not a blanket comedic audience. Right, and, and there's something to be said about the audience too, in that what he, another thing he's saying is that you know they they listen they listen they watch my comedy, they consume it. But they don't listen to it. And that's what he had a problem with, was people not listening to, to what he was saying and really interpreting it in the way that he wanted. Um, and he was specifically talking about the LGBTQ plus community when he said that because of all the backlash he got on social media, which he could care less about, mm-hmm. I mean, according to him. But that, that just brings up another question about the audience he was speaking to. I mean, everyone in, in that theater in Detroit, what are, yeah, they're watching you. They're, they, you might think they're listening to you, but what are they really getting out of this? Because, you know, there seems to be this caginess between him and the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, it, there's, it just doesn't seem like he, like there's anything to work out. Yeah. It doesn't seem very, like like he wants to, figure anything out with the, with the LGBTQ plus community, it's almost like they're just going to be joke fodder for yeah and future specials. Who is he to say how a specific demographic is to interpret his jokes? Like, you're the artist, in, but art, our art in itself is up to interpretation. If someone doesn't interpret it the way you want it to, that's their right. You know, you can't just say, oh, they didn't really get it the way I wanted them to get it. It's like looking at those block blot paintings in therapy, like in like therapists would show somebody, oh, what do you see in this picture? Like it's up to interpretation. Right. And of course there's the point he's trying to get across, but people can see it different ways, especially people from different backgrounds, different demographics, different identities, sexualities, etc. So he can't just assume that everyone's gonna get it the same way. But again, I'm not a comedian, I'm not a comedy expert like Dave Chappelle. Obviously I'm not gonna say I don't know I don't he's forgotten more about comedy than probably you and I will ever know. So that's that's on that. But I do want to talk about Daphne Dorman. You read about this? Yes. His trans woman comedian friend died by suicide in 2019, whose family has come out in support of Chappelle, and Chappelle actually put up a trust fund in her name. And I, I mean, this is tripping some people up I've seen on social media, but I think, I think it's a double, it's like it's, I think it's two ways. It goes, you know, one testimony from a member of the LGBTQ plus community doesn't save Chappelle of any ridicule. I think that's not, I don't think that's a principle that works in any situation just because one person in the group that is, that feels marginalized supports you doesn't mean that automatically up, he's off the hook. But at the same time, I think people are just, people are ignoring this aspect of the whole story. So I think it deserves more attention, but at the same time, it ultimately is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that it exonerates him from any blame. Because just because he has one um, he has one group in his corner, one small group of people in his corner, doesn't mean that he, he's excused for what he said about the entire community. Right, yeah. And it, it, that's what we were talking about earlier with, with interpretation of, of his art. And, you know, it could be anyone from any community who appreciates his art. And... That happened to be, you know, Daphne Dorman, who was a fellow comedian, um, aspiring comedian as well, uh, who was helped by Dave Chappelle. 
Uh, and I think there's something to say about that too, mm-hmm. about how someone from the same f- from the same community who kind of doesn't think the same way as you know the rest of the tribe, as Dave Chappelle yeah. described it in yeah. in his special, uh, and how that had an effect on on Daphne Dorman, not only in public but on social media, of course, uh, finding herself getting dragged. Uh, in just the same magnitude as Dave Chappelle. Yeah, and again, audience members of any community are parasocially parasocially in a relationship with Chappelle versus Dorman, who was a friend of Chappelle. So it's different there. And right. it wasn't his last line, he was a hell of a woman. Was that the last line of his thing? Uh, not the last line of his or special, one of the but f- what was the last line of that bit. Oh, yeah, that bit. So he even misgendered his friend, which <laughs> I'm not going to say is goes either way because clearly they were friends but i think it's just something like that that i could see why it would get somebody in the lg who get it get someone who is trans angry about not using the correct pronoun because that's been a big thing in recent years or or even just the last year alone in terms of accept accepting other people using their using their proper pronouns and i of course they were friends but i think i could see why it would get somebody angry Right. I think there's so much irony in this in this special because, you know, he's always – it was the same with his feminist bit mm-hmm. the, uh, when he's talking about feminism. It's like, you know, I have this to say about this. Like, even if I don't have the, the place to say this, I'm going to say it anyway. And, you know, there's so much irony with that, and it's the same with, with, with Daphne with, – with the LGBTQ plus community – you know, I have uh, this friend who who thinks alike to me, comedically, emotionally, etc., uh, and doesn't see the same as as the rest of the community. And I, like you said, it doesn't necessarily exempt you from any blame yeah. or any backlash. I mean, this is going to be going on for a while. I don't think it's going to dim his star, but there has been a lot of prominent creators on Netflix who have come out in opposition to him and saying I, I think one of them said who i think i forget what thing she was behind and i think it might have been i forget but she said i'm not working with netflix again until they drop Chappelle, basically or like get okay. disassociate from him and you never know i mean i think cancel culture is always going to be a part of things i feel like it's remember when it was just all everyone talked about like every week somebody new was either getting canceled or we were yeah. talking about someone's pending or ongoing cancellation i think it was just every week it was something i mean but now i feel like it's kind of dulled i don't know people just aren't doing a lot of controversial stuff these days i think Chappelle's the latest to be dragged up to the altar of the cancel culture (laughs) and but i don't think canceling him is the answer i don't think really canceling anyone is the true answer because there, there are always other people who think that way it's not just one one person is not the problem. One person's platform may be. I think people need to just look at Chappelle's work critically and understand what is causing the problem. And I guess take taking it to heart that what he, some of what he said was problematic and it's not a super black and white issue. Right. And you need to look at it critically. I think that's the big thing. Yeah. Whatever happens with him, you have to be a conscious consumer of your media and understand what where it's coming from and then you use it to j- 
craft your own conclusions about the way things ought to be. Right, and I think being a conscious consumer of media is, it's reasonable to ask, but it's not necessarily something we can rely on people to do, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, Dave Chappelle has been talking about the LGBTQ community for his whole career, basically, um, talking about his experience with them in the 80s and 90s and now how it's amounted up to right here and now. And it, I think someone like him, someone, again, who's so blunt uh, with his comedy and in the comedy uh, area of the media industry, I think that's someone who who won't accept the changing landscape of the media and how cancel culture has kind of come to the forefront. Uh, and, and I think the reason we aren't seeing many, like you said, many people getting canceled right, like right now, as opposed to when everyone was talking about it, when someone was getting canceled constantly, I think people have learned or influential people have learned the landscape and what they can and cannot say publicly. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of adjust accordingly uh, to, you know, maintain their image. Yeah. And, but Chappelle's never going to do that because, no. I mean, that's just who he, it's just Chappelle, you know. Right. I think he's been around long enough and his brand is solidified enough that people know exactly what they're going to get. And it's just unfortunate now that what he, you know, his usual shtick is now a little bit dated, I would say. is a little. It is a little bit dated. I mean, you said he sounds old. He does sound very old from a different era. In yeah. A way. I mean, he, he sounds like he just sounds like an, an old man who's just cursing the world, his fist up yeah. in the air, you know, wiggling his fist. But the world, think about this. When we were, when were you born? 2002, 2003? Oh, two. Oh, uh, two? Me too. In 2002, okay. gay people couldn't get married in right. all 50 states. There was a constitutional amendment being proposed that would solidify marriage as just between a man and a woman. Think about it. Now we're both 18, 19 in college Gay marriage is a thing, and in all 50 states, and acceptance of trans people and the use of proper pronouns is being pushed at the forefront. Think about how fast the world has changed in just 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. That's – and th that's crazy to me. I – there are kids who, who – there I've, I've known people who, you know – it's just the world has changed so fast. I don't really know how to say it, right, say it no, any other way. The world has changed so fast. That's just the world we live in now. It changes. Society is changing quickly. I mean, everything changed with COVID. Things are just moving at a record pace in terms of where our society is going. And it clearly, in some way, shape, or form, has passed Chappelle by. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of people from his generation. Yeah. And I mean, he's the age of, of many of our parents. I mean, I can definitely attest to that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some some things are definitely not as able to be perceived by yeah. um, people from that generation. They're kind of stuck in their ways um, from, uh, you know, before the 2010s really brought that significant shift once our generation really yeah, came of age. Exactly. Yeah. Who knows where the Zoomers are going to take it? Who but knows? Who knows? But that... That's all we got for our Monday show. Uh, it was a pleasure doing the morning show again with you, Nathan. It was Gl a pleasure. Glad I was able to fill in, get my morning show fix in for the week before break. You going home for break? I'm not going home for break. I 
I, well, I mean, Rochester's six hours away. So yeah, no, I got you. I don't you, think yeah. it's worth I'm it. I'm going to go, probably going to go home an hour 30. That's all it is from me from here to the Jersey Shore. So that'll be my plans. No but um, that's all for our show. And in the words of Drake, make sure the Young Money ship is never sinking. Morning Wake Up Call will be back tomorrow for the Tuesday show. And for Nathan, he'll be back next Monday. And for me, you'll probably see me next Thursday. But until then, have a good one.